the simplest, easiest way to end Satan's kingdom is marriage. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mark. Mark. <laughs> I've already filled the first season. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by Dave, the theology of his body, Van Bickle. How you doing, Dave? I'm good. I You um you forgot your name. I mean, that's... Well, <laughs> Okay, okay. In my defense, it's 105 degrees right now in Houston, and I just found out that not only is my air conditioning not working, but I had to shut off all the fans in my office. Wait, is that true? Your air, your AC is not working? It's working-ish. It's a 25-year-old system, so uh, it's uh, oh, no. it's in the 80s in my office right now, so I, I had a, a heat stroke. That's what that was. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, this, is, this should be interesting. This is going to be very interesting. Yeah, so we're recording this in August. Uh, it'll come to y'all in September. We are doing something special this semester, this season. It's like a semester. This is like a, a stately. We're like professors. Uh, we practically are. If I don't show up in 15 minutes, you can leave. <laughs> yeah, <show. laughs> yeah, exactly. I was always that kid that I didn't realize it was rude for you to eat your lunch during class. And apparently Dr. Regis Martin hated that. And then one day someone said, you know, you shouldn't do that, especially in this class. And I was like, well, he's never said anything. But I stopped doing that. I was very terrified of that man. Not because of anything he said. I just am scared of authority. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, he's intimidating. He is. And here we go. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so we got something special this semester, this season. Ah, there I go again. Uh, it's the heat stroke. No, we are gonna talk about evangelizing the culture. Dave, I don't know if you know this, but our culture today doesn't agree with the church's teaching, especially in areas of the body, gender sexuality and various ethical matters did you know that thanks for enlightening me on that gomer yeah there might be a resource that we could provide to help people evangelize the said culture about that yeah and so what we're going to do is we're going to use the master evangelist himself pope saint john paul ii and his theology of the body and we're going to use that as a springboard in order to understand and equip you out there to evangelize the culture that's our goal for this season i'm pretty excited yeah, as you know, a well-documented history, right? One of the greatest things that could have happened in modern times, October 16th, 1978, Pope John Paul ascends the throne of St. Peter, the first non-Italian pope in how many years? Like 500. 500 years. It's odd. I mean, it was out of the ordinary. It was strange. It was kind of a strange thing. Who was this guy, right? But he was kind of the person that had no mind to match him, right? He was yeah. he's a prophet. He's a brilliant philosopher and theologian, possibly one of the most, I'm not saying grace, but most influential philosophers of modern times, no, no doubt in my mind. And not long after his pontificate begins, September of 1979, he begins to address the people through his Wednesday audiences over the series of three years, I believe, in 129 different presentations. Five years. Five years. Because he took a brief break when he got shot. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, awesome. every time I get shot by an atheistic Turkish communist, I too have to take a break. You know? Oh, I don't. I, I feel like it's the times are too dark. I can't take breaks <laughs> you, when I you get shot. You power through. Them. I do yeah. some self-care. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the difference yeah. between us right there. These these talks would eventually become known as the theology of the body, John Paul II's theology of the body. And at the time, 
no one realized really what was happening, the bombshell that he was unleashing right. um, to evangelize the world. One one commentator, famous, I think it was George Weigel, said that this is, is like a nuclear bomb for our society, right, that has that kind of power, Then we have not realized it yet, and still to this day haven't realized it, where he talked about a unique blend of what we call Thomistic personalism, of Thomism and personalism, where we didn't just understand what man is, but who man is and what he's to do, right? And he gives these beautiful reflections each each week, obviously taking a break, as Gomer said, but eventually putting them together in a single volume, we we have this almost definitely prophetic, almost like like mind-blowing collection of essays that help us to understand what is going on and how to address man's search for for joy for meaning and and for our original intent it's it's beautiful it's awesome and that's what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks yeah have you ever been to a wednesday audience with jp2 i have when, when did you go let's see um i was there in the jubilee year Okay. I think the next one I went to was Pope Benedict. So I don't. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I think that's. Yeah. I was at, apparently, it, became, it was one of the last ones of JP2. Cool. He was cool. in a, you know, in a wheelchair. They brought him up to the microphone where he gave, where he led the Angelus and gave the address. And, and then um, what they do is when the Pope comes out, there's people from all over the world that are in the Paul VI auditorium or center, whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. And ugliest building in the Vatican, but it holds a lot of people. And so he was there and he did this or everyone gets introduced. So all the groups that sign up ahead of time, they all get introduced. We were sitting right behind the Italian Air Force. They were there for their Wednesday audience. And when you get introduced, a lot of people stand and wave or do something. A lot of choirs are there. And so they'll sing a piece or something. So we decided 175 crazy charismatics from Franciscan University of Steubenville decided that when he would they would call us we would scream like soccer hooligans at the top of our lungs then start singing which was more like scream chanting come holy spirit let the fire fall and then it would turn into hooligan screaming followed by jp2 we love you so we did that at one point i was standing on top of the armrests of my chair screaming at the top of my lungs (laughs) it was crying the whole time it was awesome yeah and the whole time he's just blessing us and then we do the whole jp2 we love you jp2 we love you and we were the last people to be announced too so that made it extra awesome at the end he's being wheeled away and he and i was watching him the whole time because i was like i gotta get every every ounce of this in he motions to the monsignor to uh, to push him back and so they push his chair back to the microphone and most of the people, I'd say, you know, they're all streaming out. They're leaving. And we were still there. And he goes, and to the students, JP2 loves you too. And we went nuts. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure it. I told that at the last, the last thing. But that was, in, awesome. that was in November of 2004. And he would die in 2005. And you could tell, you know, he was very, he was bent but unbroken. So, yeah. So to talk about the theology of the body, he also had a manuscript that was written called Male and Female. He created him, a theology of the body. That revisions of the current text that we have, the made one by what's his name? Waldstein. Waldstein. And he was talking about the the importance of of JP2 and this theology of the body that he was casting. And one of the problems in Christianity is Platonism and Gnosticism, a soft Gnosticism, constantly sneaks in to Christianity, which is, oh, the body doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is our spiritual soul. And that is foreign to the theology of Genesis, of Christ, of his Jewishness. It is kind of a unfortunate side effect of the church being more Greek than it is Jewish, right? 
And so what JP2 wanted to do in the context of the failed reception of Humane Vitae by Pope Paul VI. So St. Pope Paul VI wrote Humane Vitae, published it, and then in his eyes basically almost broke the church in half. A lot of the rich and indulgent Western nations that don't want to hear the language of self-denial, they decided that they theologians and priests stood on the steps of Catholic University of America in 1969, I believe it was, or 68, and openly rebelled against the, the teachings of Humane Vitae. They, in the words of one man who was there, they dared the bishops to do something about it, and none of them did. So you have this grand silence, this chilling silence that sweeps through the church, especially in America, over Humane Vitae and the church's teaching on contraception because they were afraid of the revolt of their people. Now, my parents were raised in this church, and she said you would go to one priest and he would say it's totally fine, practice contraception. You would go to another one who said, nah, I don't know, I, I don't think you should, but you got to leave it up to your own conscience. And then you go to a third, says it's neutral, it's up to you. And so... You know, they get caught into this lie and this lifestyle, where, whereas the church is teaching for 2,000 years, going all the way back to the arguably one of the earliest non-biblical Christian writings, the Didache, expressly condemns abortion and contraception in the same breath, right? And there were many different forms of contraceptives at that time, a lot of weird ones, especially out of the land of Egypt. But this has been a part of the church's understanding of what is marriage for, what is sex for, like what is its purposes? And then within the context, raised to the level of a sacrament, how does this become holy and sanctified and righteous? Not just a thing we do with our bodies, but something that makes us holy, right? How does it involve in the act of sanctification? The church has always affirmed this stuff. St. Augustine onward, you have an understanding of the goods of marriage and all this. Right. But when with Thomas Aquinas, and especially as it caught up in the personalism of JP2, you have this Thomistic personalism that I just wanted to introduce Thomism, grounded in the teachings of St. Thomas and of Aristotle and obviously of Augustine and, and Scripture, wants us to understand that when I say I, I'm referring not just to my spiritual soul, not just to my reason and will, but I is also my body, right? Who I am is an embodied spirit, right? I have a spiritual soul. So the quick categories are anything living has a soul, an animus in Latin, that which animates, any in, in Aristotelian philosophy. Anything that is alive has a soul. And animals have souls. Plants have souls. If you're alive, you have a soul. But humans are different in that we have spiritual or rational souls. That the form of our bodies is also the rational principle or the spiritual principle. That's how we differ from animals. So Aristotle would call us a rational animal. The Catholic Church, we are rational animals. And this is important because you cannot divorce who we are as human persons from our embodied fleshy nature. And once you do that, you're creating what we would call more Platonism than a Christianity. It goes to the philosopher Plato who believed that we were souls or spirits that were trapped in bodies. And we never want to have that dualistic thinking that a human person is a split between, a divorce between body and soul. Because the body will always lose. So you had some Gnostic heretic sects that believed, okay, the body is pure matter, matter is evil, therefore the body is evil. So starve the body. So you had cults of Gnosticism where the leaders would eventually starve themselves to death. But then you had other cults of Gnosticism <laughs> that said, well, there's a body doesn't matter. My soul belongs to Jesus. Like today. 
then they would right. engage in uh in and let's just say hot and spicy liturgies you spent a lot of time in one of those cults for a while didn't you? <laughs> i was saved i was saved from a rescue deprogram no so you have this problem though where when you say the body means nothing or you say the body is evil but the soul is not and you put this divorce between the two then kind of anything goes and we've seen it played out in the first 300 years of the church but jp2 wants to reground the church's understanding of the condemnation of contraception with a positive view of human love in the divine plan and that's the theology of the body yeah amazing when you're reading the theology of the body one of the marks of it is the positive view it brings to sex and marriage it is one of the most beautiful writings about this and what we find in in if you look at jp2's life is that he was deeply influenced by couples that he was friends with as he when he was a priest and a bishop he would go camping with them and they would climb mountains and they would do all these things and he would witness their beautiful romantic love and and watch this and and what what we're told is that he would observe you know these relationships and see the beauty and the sign of god that they were and you see that come forward in every page that the body is good that it is a complete human integral being right the body yeah. and soul and that all things through the passion death and resurrection of christ which i think he says in familias consorso that we do with those bodies can be sanctified, right? Where including sex. And so he presents it's not just kind of a reteaching of humana vitae. It's a total new way to frame, not new, but a reframing of the church's sexual teaching in a totally positive light. Yeah. The most shocking thing as I'm reading the theology body, and I've been reading it again for this series, is how much he knew as a priest. Right. About like married love and sanctifying love like that it, it, between two people. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the th- great schools of love was his own family, which was marked by tragedy. He would be an orphan at a young age. He lost his his older brother. He was all alone in the world. But he saw that even after the death of his mother, he saw that love endure right within the life of his father. And then after his father's death. Right. So love, human love is beautiful and human love is fair. And that's why JP2 said, I love human love. And that was a big part of his young adult ministry to the point where some of the young adults said, why do you keep encouraging us to, to get married? It's like you don't you're not even encouraging us to be priests. And he was like, oh, I would love it if you did. But human love, like I know the majority of you are called to marriage. Right. Right. So JP2 comes at it with the metaphysics of St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle. Right, He wants to understand the human person as a composite of body and spiritual soul. But at the same time, JP2 was reading this guy Max Shaler and a lot of contemporary thinkers. Max Shaler is the origin of the school of phenomenology, which seeks to kind of bracket off metaphysical conversations like, okay, well, we can't really know this stuff, especially in light of all the findings of physics and natural science. So we're going to move this off to the side. This stuff's important, but it's not part of our philosophy we're going to get to the phenomena, the experience itself as experienced by the individual subject. And you could say, in, in a funny way, a Thomistic personalist like JP2 was an objective subjectivist, right? Because he cared yeah. about the human subject. And you find this most especially in the opening chapter of his book before he became Pope, Love and Responsibility, which Pope Paul VI was reading when he wrote Humana Vitae. And if you actually crack open the encyclical on Humana Vitae, you will find that the paragraphs that cover contraception, there's only like four or five paragraphs. The rest talk about, try to frame it within this understanding of the spousal gift 
very personalist language. He wanted to present the church's teaching in, some, in a form different than Casti Canubii, which was the previous document in the 1930s, written by, I think, Pope Pius XI, who wrote in response to the Anglican Church at one of their Lambeth conference in 1930, they allowed for contraception for married couples in these very limited circumstances. And he wanted to condemn that. And then he also wanted to represent the church's teaching. But he did it in metaphysical language. Paul VI was trying to do it in relational language. And JP2 does it from, I would say, biblical and personal language. Right. So um, so let me go into a, just a quick breakdown and overview of the TOB from his perspective. So first, what he wants to do is he talks about the words of Christ. Right, talking about the words of Christ. So he uses the phrase like from the beginning. So in Matthew 19, Pharisees want to trap Jesus in the district of Judea beyond the Jordan, where one of the Herods was. And that Herod forced his brother to divorce Herodias and marry him. And the reason why their names sound so similar is because he was her uncle as well as her husband. So that's horrible. And so they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Right. And for any cause is the the phrase you need that's so wide open to allow for Herod's divorce and remarriage. And Jesus keeps pointing back to the beginning, but from the beginning, it was not so to the point where they're trying to trap him for Herod and Jesus ends up showing them the falsehood of their teaching. And then they're like, well, then why did Moses permit divorce? And he said, for the hardness of your heart, God permitted it or Moses permitted it. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so he uses those, that as a stepping off point to then immerse ourselves in the pre-fallen understanding of marriage. That is creation, one and two, Adam and Eve, then the understanding of the fall, and then from that what he calls historical man, which is how do we understand marriage and love and sex and lust and procreation, raising children within the context of the regime of sin. And you'll find, brothers and sisters, that the catechism of the Catholic Church follows this exact historical paradigm, the salvation history approach. Marriage before the fall, marriage under the regime of sin, marriage under the law, and then marriage under the gospel. And it's really powerful because it gives us JP2's vision kind of in a condensed form. And so what he does is, so we got the words of Christ from the beginning, purity of heart, those are the different things, right? So now we have the Sermon on the Mount and the call to be pure of heart. And from the heart, if you if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has already committed adultery with her. So now Jesus is confronting the human heart, the source of our desires and the call to purity of heart. And then the next major section is on the sacrament of matrimony, especially as it relates to countenance for the kingdom, that is virginity or celibacy or continence for the kingdom, where people renounce the sexual desire or sexual act in order to live in chaste sobriety and in chastity for the Lord. And then it ends with, because this is kind of like the whole argument is this giant, beautiful, positive vision. And then it ends with the church's understanding of her condemnation of contraception. Like, why does the church say no to this? So it's all, you know, that's the end in view. Theology of the body, the end in view is the teaching on contraception. As we continue on with this series, we're going to present different concepts from the theology of the body, and we're going to present it in a way that we are hoping can help you engage the culture, understand what's going on, and evangelize. And I think the beauty of the theology of the body is it's not just a list of rules, right? It is something that can engage our culture and can have that conversation 
about who man is, what he is, and and how we can can be happy and joyful together forever, right? To evangelize each other and to evangelize the world and to change the world, really. So as we continue on, keep in mind, you know, the different issues that you come up against, the different hard conversations that you avoid that you don't want to have. Those are the things we're going to try to wade into and talk about practical things on how we address those kinds of things. Dave, I got a question for you. Last night I was on Facebook, a thing I almost never do. And I am in one of your Facebook groups. Okay. And you had done a marriage seminar last night. Yeah, that was last night. Yeah. Yeah. I almost signed up for it, but then I was like, oh, gosh, I'm going to be so busy. Turns out YouTube isn't going to watch itself. Um, (laughs) No, so just give the folks a title and maybe the overview of your seminar. I think it's very relevant. Yeah, it was called Spiritual Warfare and Marriage. And we were going to take a comprehensive look at just the different aspects of spiritual warfare that go with marriage. And it came about because of, just the constant emails and phone calls I was getting where people were like, look, this is these are the things that are happening in my marriage right now. And it's not just one thing, right? Yep. I mean, it's like a thousand problems that are going on. And it's so clear that so many people are like, the devil is attacking our marriage. And 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 I'm not the kind of person who sees the devil around every corner at all, but I have no problem affirming that when someone says that, right? Yeah. Because we know, right, in my mind, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the simplest, easiest way to end Satan's kingdom is marriage, right? I mean, the simplest, easiest way is to be romantically in love with a person, give your life to that person, have lots of sex, which is fruitful and has lots of children and raise Catholic disciples, right? I mean, that is an end game. That's certainly what I'll call, I'll call plan A for my life. But, <laughs> right, right. but I mean, honestly, I mean, think of how could it be more simple than that, right? Yeah. Like the easiest way you're ever going to make disciples is in your children, right? You, you have them. Right. They're they're yours for so long. And so I always think of that is that that's why the devil just despises marriages so much. Yeah. So we talked a lot about that. We talked about the different traps he has and things like that. It was good. It was a great discussion. Yeah. So if you think about this, the devil hates marriage. Right. There is a cultural war on the very fundamentals of marriage. In the 1920s and 30s, you had the rise of no fault divorce that swept through our country. You used to be people didn't realize this. It used to be you had to go to a judge and make a case for why you should be divorced. And outside of spousal abandonment and repeated adultery and violence in the home or, you know, abuse and neglect, judges would almost never allow you to divorce. They'd be like, no, these aren't good reasons. No fault divorce meant there is no fault. There's no one at fault. We just have irreconcilable differences and we're done. G.K. Chesterton, who opposed this in many of his writings, his great line that comes from this is, I'm not afraid of frivolous divorces that'll come of this. I'm more afraid of frivolous marriages. And that's yeah. exactly what we've seen. And then those arguments then flowed right into the arguments for gay marriage in 2016 and whatnot, because it was all about this notion of the sacredness of marriage. And people laughed at that. What do you mean sacredness of marriage? And one of the common things you would hear is, you know, people get married and divorced all the time. Where's the sacredness? And it's like, exactly. And the only people defending this is the Catholic Church. There's a holistic vision or there's a fractured vision. And the fractured vision wants to imitate the holistic vision by being its mirror opposite. So it says, well, okay, well, we'll be logically consistent. 
there's no such thing as sacred marriage. Therefore, we're going to destroy the union of man and woman through divorce. Then we're going to destroy the very nature of man and woman. We're going to deny that there's maleness and femaleness. We're going to, and we're going to separate sex from babies. We're going to separate babies from the procreative act itself. We're going to scientize the whole thing and, and make it a, an act of, of production instead of reproduction and co-creation. So you have these things and you look at it and you're like, wow, this is a satanic attack on the very nature of the family. And then you look at Genesis 3 and you find yep. that the serpent attacks the woman and the Hebrew idiom for nakedness meant the, the one you sleep with. So, for instance, in the purity code in Leviticus, it says like a son shall not sleep with his father's wife for that is his father's nakedness, meaning like his stepmother or whatever. And the idea of this being you're unveiling something that should be veiled to you. Right. And there's some sacred bond there that you're violating. Right. And, and when you look in Genesis chapter three, right, the, the interplay of the couple were both naked without shame and the subtleness of the serpent in Hebrew, it's a play on words because subtleness is based on the same word in Hebrew as nakedness. So it's this attack on their spousal union. And again, we see this played out. So in the theology of the body, we have some major themes that I wanted to go through. Dave, before I go through those major themes, the originals and all that stuff, is there any other comments you want to make? No, I think this is great. I think just to, to note one more thought on the you know Satan's plan for marriage is all of this you'll see over and over again in, in the theology of the body. It, marriage is a sign of God, right? It, it's a symbol of God. Like the fruitfulness, the love, it is the symbol of God. And Satan despises things like that. He yeah. hates the sign of God. And what he tries to do with symbols, signs of God, sacramentals, things like that, as he tries to take the most beautiful thing and make it the most ugly. Mm. And we're seeing that today. I think we see in forms like pornography and things like that, yeah. that that's exactly what he's trying to do. Yeah, amen to that. I want to talk about this in particular. So when JP2 looks with the eyes of Christ, whenever I teach theology of the body, I don't do it kind of, <laughs> basically all the American people just imitate Christopher West and steal from him. What I try to do is turn it into a Bible study, which is more what JP2 does. He takes scripture and then writes a bunch of reflections on it. So what does Jesus do? Look to the beginning. So then you go through Genesis 1, which shows you the beauty and dignity and orderliness and rationalness of creation, right? Day 1, 2, and 3, day 4, 5, and 6. Um, one of the interesting things in Orthodox Judaism is they get married on Tuesdays. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. Because Tuesdays are double blessed because there's right. a double blessing pronounced by God. <laughs> so you look through these things and you begin to see the harmony and unity of creation. And it culminates in the creation of man, male and female. He created them. And this understanding that man, male and female before the fall, one are both made in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis 1, it shows them being made at the same time. And also that they're both given dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea and all the animals. And so this is a super powerful way of viewing the union of man and woman, that they exercise a priestly and royal role over creation. And then you go into, you know, you have the seventh day where God hallowed it and rested from his work. Then you go into Genesis chapter two, and really it's a reflection on, on chapter two where we have a lot of the major, what we call the originals of JP2. So we have original justice. That Adam and Eve, from the first moment of their creation, were created in a state of supernatural grace, that this grace is their intimate relationship with God, and this state of justice also meant that they were free from sin. Not temptation, but sin. That they had no presence of the stain of sin within them. And then you have the original solitude, 
Adam in Genesis chapter two was created first from the dust of the ground and then placed into the garden. Eve was created from Adam's side. But before that, it says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will create a partner suitable for him or a helpmate for him. The word in Hebrew for helpmate. No, no, no. Ooh, let me back up. Let me back up. I'm already ruined it, Dave, and you didn't catch it. Uh, the man was alone. So what did God create first? He first created the animals. No comment from Dave. All right. No, no. I'm, I'm, I always okay. make a joke about like other people have done this, so I'm stealing from them, but it's like, uh, I'm lonely. There's a giraffe. I mean, I like necking, but this is ridiculous, right? Isn't that, oh, isn't that my funny? gosh. That is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Really? Really? Because I stole it from it's, a professor. It's one of the worst things ever. <laughs> but isn't it funny, though? Now that you mention it, yes. since you asked for comment, now I'm giving it. Thank you. How in it, And I don't want to offend everybody. I feel like I'm going to. But like in a certain way, we've kind of accepted the pets now as, as, as our companion. Yeah. Isn't it weird how obsessive we are? about animals now it's weird, strange i think i think you know for many people empty nesters and the mo people most obsessed with pets are empty nesters empty nesters and people who struggle having children so like yeah. infertile or people who got married late in life that it has replaced children with a yeah. an extreme affection yeah. that you're like nah. Yeah. I mean, for me, my dog definitely has a human soul, so I, it's it's totally different when I obsess about my yeah. dog. But uh, <laughs> you guys are weird. Yeah, your dog is like off in the corner reading the Summa. Right. Uh, right. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> no. So we have this this understanding of original solitude that man the the story of Genesis chapter two, God creates the animals to show man that he is an animal like these creatures, but he's also something totally different. And that experience of solitude, one, is he's alone with God. Two, he's alone because none of these creatures are persons like him. And it's like an, a, a giant exclamation point pointing to Adam's aloneness in creation. Like, right, it's divine pedagogy. Yeah. He's teaching you. Right. You can love your animal, but you know at a certain point they're not children. They're, not, they're never going to give you the love that you give them because they are incapable of it. They need to be persons. They don't, they're not subjects. They don't have a vast interior world, a vast interior life like humans do. Um, and so the idea is, so then from original solitude comes original unity. When man wakes up, he sees the woman. Behold, this one at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She shall be called woman for she came from her man. In almost all languages, you have that relationship of male, female, woman, from man and here in hebrew it's isha and ish and he sees her adam woke up married yeah he woke up married so if you're wondering ladies why men are clueless about relationships we were asleep when the whole thing went oh down my gosh. oh my gosh that one Sorry, kills ladies. when i use that at a parish mission that one kills <laughs> you know this is like i would have to say <laughs> one of my favorite character developments in literature is man like pre-Eve and post-Eve. Yeah. Because he seems like such an idiot, right, at the beginning. He's, like, naming the animals, like, cow, sheep, chicken. And then he wakes up, and he's, like, reciting, like, poetry, like, Shakespearean-level poetry. You know? Yeah. Isn't it funny? It is funny. It is funny. Sister Miriam James, who is everyone's favorite human ever, she talks about the role her. of woman is to awaken the man. And that puberty oh. is an experience of being awoken. Like it's like this Adamic experience that we have. And she phrased it in such an amazing way that she did it so good. This is how good she is that she turned 
the Star Wars sequels into something <laughs> tolerable, which he said when Ray went to seek out Luke Skywalker, who had collapsed in on himself with despair and depression and cynicism. Yeah. Oh, she wakes it him took up. a woman oh. to awaken Luke to his role to lay down his life. For, and that's how it ends, right? He lays that's, down his life. That's great. And I was like, okay, as a motif, that's good. In execution, I don't think so. It's a terrible movie. All three of them are terrible. <laughs> so I, I find that to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, and and Adam Driver's character, the the bad guy, wasn't him, Kylo Ren, he's being pulled into her gravity. Like you have these men who are forming warriors and here this woman enters in and awakens something new within them. So he sees the woman, right? And he exclaims, this is my flesh. This is my body, right? Flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. I think I just quoted DMX there. Anywho, the, there's an experience there of Adam seeing one like unto himself who is a person. So only persons can have that level of unity. And she's naked, but they have no shame. He is naked, she's naked, and they see in their bodies that their bodies are physically meant for one another. That the maleness and the femaleness, that in, in its most basic biological way, are states of givenness meaning i am meant for you to give myself to you you are meant to receive the gift of myself and give yourself to me and i'm meant to receive that gift and this is what he calls original innocence that you have that original state of justice that they're in in virtue they have the grace but when they look at one another there's no shame even though they're naked and the beauty of that is that it, it, he says at one point i want to make a distinction between being naked without shame versus shamelessness yeah. that we have today in our culture where there is and we've always had in, in our culture right the world's oldest profession right this notion of sex and the body and nakedness as something to be displayed shamelessly and that's a corruption of adam's naked without shame adam and eve's naked without shame so from this he says if you look at their nakedness you have the language of the body and this is part of not body language but the language of the body that the body in the action, because everything, because we're rational animals, everything about our bodies communicates almost like a sacrament, our souls. The interior is communicated through the exterior, even in the structure of the body. And so he calls this the law of the gift. And he takes this from the documents of Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, man can only find himself through a sincere gift of himself. Along with Totus Tuus Maria, this is probably the great motto yeah. that frames all of JP2's to mystic personalism, his entire papacy, his entire life. Man can only find himself through a sincere gift of himself. So the law of the gift is this law is written even in my body. I'm here to give myself, not just my, my sexual organs. I'm here to give my very self to her and her to me. And in that mutual self-gift and mutual self-surrender, you now have nine months later a child that you get to name and the devil and the world will do everything they can to destroy that gift and that's what this series is going to be about evangelizing in a world where that gift the concept of that gift has been destroyed we're gonna step away for a quick break for a message from our friends at ascension press gomer and i love being a part of the ascension press community as always we love to hear from you what do they text gomer eksb to 33777 to get on our mailing list EKSB to 33777, those fancy special numbers just for texting fine folks like you. And you'll get on our email list that'll alert you when new shows are dropping, give you more detailed show notes, et cetera, et cetera. We'll be right back. 
Have you discovered the graces of praying novenas? I'm Annie Deddens. And I'm John Paul Deddens. We're the creators of PrayMoreNovenas.com, a ministry that helps Catholics pray this nine-day prayer, and the authors of Ascension's Pocket Guide to Novenas. We've found that the tradition of praying novenas bears great fruit today, just as it has for centuries. Mother Teresa, Padre Pio, and other great saints prayed novenas. This form of prayer has helped many faithful Catholics to grow closer to Christ. The Pocket Guide to Novenas is your guide through 20 different novenas, 14 of which we wrote especially for this book. From a novena to St. John Paul II, to praying the novena for healing, or even praying for the Blessed Mother to undo knots in your life, this little book can be your go-to guide for novenas in your home or in your travels. You can order your copy today at ascensionpress.com novenas. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for taking a brief pause with us, with Ascension Press. Buy everything they sell. It'll enrich your life abundantly <laughs> all the time. <laughs> right now, Dave is flexing because he's shaming. It's a theology of the body. It is. It is. You know, one day, Dave, I want to do a theology of the body about like, like spoof health and weightlifting. Oh. I think that would be cool. That'd be cool, but it does get weird. It gets so weird. That's why I want to I have the conversation yeah. with you. When people talk, I mean, I have listened to so many yeah. podcasts yeah. and speakers who are like, they're like fitness fanatics who then have a conversion as mm-hmm. opposed to like someone who has a conversion and becomes it fit, yeah. right? Which I'm neither, right? Okay, I'm not converted or fit, so it's not, it's good for me You're to just, just sit on the sidelines and just, it, it always gets weird, doesn't it? It does. It does because it becomes, this is my thing. I have a buddy. We have a mutual friend. We'll call him Adam because that's his name. <laughs> and he said- I'm always hesitant to work out because he said my genetics respond so well to weightlifting and I love it, but I become very vain very quickly. Okay. And he goes, so I I actually don't lift weights because I'm scared of how vain I am. And I was like, well, okay. You know, or they go weird the opposite way where they're like a push up equals a Hail Mary, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Every every time I run with a rucksack, it's an act of penance. Souls are released from exactly, purgatory. Exactly right. That's what that's what the Lord told you one day. In uh, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. That is the fourth secret of Fatima: rucking. Okay. So before we say anything more blasphemous, um, I want to talk about original sin, right? And original sin from the eyes of Pope John Paul, which is an excellent meditation on the rupture between man and God, right? So you have that original solitude is ruptured. You have that original unity is ruptured. Because the innocence is lost. So the man can then look upon the woman and not see a human person, but see a collection of body parts. The woman can feel the look of the eyes of the man. And what does she do? She grabs the fig leaves and covers herself. I like one translation says they made aprons out of fig leaves. I I just find that so funny. But they cover their nakedness. Now, Dave, can I ask you a quick question? Where do they put the fig leaves? We well, all know where the <laughs> privates, right? Yeah. I love They're asking that question. Areas, if that's what we say to the kids, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I always ask that to the adults when I do the uh, inclusion <laughs> class. I'm like, so can you guys tell me? And I act, I'm like so earnest. Can you guys tell me, where do they put the fig leaves? Like, I, it doesn't say in the text. Where do we, where do they put? And they're all like, oh. Uh, <laughs> and they always do this little, ah. Uh, yeah, right. I'm like, we all know. We all know, right? So the idea of this is. JP2 points out that they have to hide their bodies, which disclosed previously the language of the body and the law of the gift. Yeah. They have to hide it in order to defend now their dignity. Right, right. And that's the great loss of original justice. There is no 
justice anymore. It's taking. And that is what he calls not just the fall, but this is what leads to what we call historical man. And this is part of the structure of JP2. We have prehistorical man, the garden. We have no understanding of that. We only have its reverberations down through history. The longing of our heart for a love that is pure, for a union that is perfect, that satisfies. And then we come to this experience, though, where people despair of ever being in love and truly being loved and loving another. And so they settle for the mutual use of each other, yeah. using each other for emotions, using each other for money, using each other for whatever it might be, especially sex and sexual pleasure. And you have this great lie that is being whispered. This is all that life is. is. This is the peak of human relationship, mutual use. And what Christ is doing in calling us to have purity of heart is he's challenging the narrative of sin. But he's also challenging the narrative of sin when he calls into question divorce and when he calls into question adultery, right? The laws around it, right? He's pulling us back to God's original meaning of the body and of marriage. This is going to be an awesome series, guys. It's, it's going to be all the hot topics, and we're going to talk about just the beauty of what it means to be in in a total self-gift. So please tell your friends, join us for this series. It's going to be great. And maybe read up a little bit on Theology of the Body. But for the most part, we're going to try to give you resources and things like that to supplement this. We're so excited to talk about this. And we really think that it's going to be very fruitful for your ministry of evangelization and just in your own lives. So please tune in. Absolutely. Yeah, just to run through some of the topics that we'll cover me and Dave are going to cover things like equality, complementarity, and sameness between men and women. We're going to talk about spousal love from the book Love and Responsibility. What does love look like? How does love grow and evolve? We're going to talk about chastity and children. What does it mean? What is our responsibility with children? We're going to talk about contraception and procreation. We're going to talk about the major sin of Catholics in this area, cohabitation. And then we're going to bring on some special guests that we have planned to help us in this series, in the main series. Usually the idea is the main series is me and Dave. Right now we're going to have special interviews as well because there's going to be some technical topics that we want help on. So transgenderism and understanding our bodies and understanding women's health care, which is absolutely men need to be informed about. We're going to talk about the great decline of women's health care with the rise of the pill and the sexual revolution and things that kind of revolve around that. So stay tuned. I think it's going to be an epic season. And we are help, trying to help you be equipped to speak lovingly to this age. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you all.